the inspiration from these pictures in my basement. I've been working non-stop, can have a minute wasted. Hello, and welcome to Naturally Driven by Grips Coffee. Join us while we interview creatives, founders, and leaders to discover what it is that inspired them to bet on themselves and create what they want to see in the world. I'm your host, Alex Garrett, and I'm joined in this episode with my co-host, Olivia Quitney, talking to Mr. David Hoffman, co-founder of Bankless. Bankless is a podcast and community pushing the boundaries of finance while educating along the way the ultimate guide to crypto finance. David himself is a pioneer of crypto investment theses and wrote the defining investment thesis for Ethereum. David achieved financial independence before the age of 30 and holds 99% of his wealth outside of banks and inside of Ethereum and is focused on leading the way for others to do the same. This is a wide-ranging conversation where we cover everything crypto, finance, and having the guts to go out on your own. Enjoy. David, thank you so much for joining the Naturally Driven. We really appreciate you coming on. I'm happy to be here. I'm excited to be here. Let's do this. Fantastic. Well, like, let's just dive straight into it. Um, obviously, you know, you and I go far back, you know, quite a bit, uh, the old college days over in Orange. Um, but I wanted to go even farther back and get an idea of, uh, you know, basically who you are. You know, this podcast is about hearing the stories of, of, of people that are kind of going out and blazing their own trails. And, uh, you know, we've seen you as, as somebody that's absolutely done that. So um, can you give me an idea of, 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 of where you're from and, and what it was like being a student and going into college and what your mindset was? Yeah, absolutely. I'm, I'm from Seattle and I'm still in Seattle. And so of all 28 years in my life, 24 of them have been inside of the same neighborhood in Seattle. And I always tell people that when I'm meeting them news, like I, I live like seven blocks away from the house I grew up in. And I can't really tell if that's cool or not cool. It's one, it's one of those two things. Um, but uh, yeah, then I, I went to, to college to study psychology for my undergrad. And that's where I, I met you, Alex. And what I was really primarily interested in was not just um, psychology, but psychology I kind of selected as a it feels like a neutral middle ground for so many other disciplines, right? If you can, also my mother was a psychologist, so I have bias there, but uh, (laughs) I feel, I felt like if you, if you understand psychology, you have the the foundations to understand a lot more. And I I feel like that's what I really enjoyed about um, Chapman university and my education there. And all just the learnings that I've done since Chapman is it's all very multidisciplinary. Um, the true true knowledge, in my opinion, is being integrative of other knowledge, right? So, you know, if you want to be an expert and go and dive deep and just be the canonical expert about one realm of knowledge, that's that's fantastic, and then that's absolutely going to work. But what I think is underappreciated is people that can understand history, psychology, finance, and then draw connections between those three things. It's really the the pattern integrations that I think has really been the what I would find as the the foundation of my quote unquote career path. Um, I came out of of college looking to be a clinical psychologist, but also wanting to deal with um, physical therapy, movement, and nutrition, and trying to figure out how to fashion a career integrating these three things. Right. Um, so if I can interrupt real quick, David, to, to mm-hmm. harp on something that you brought up earlier, um, you went in. Did you go into this with this with this methodology, with this thought process, going into Chapman and declaring your major? You said to yourself, you know, when you were 18 years old or whatever, you know, this is a good baseline foundation for many different careers. I don't know what I want to do now, but this is going to be a good job, you know, leaping off point for regardless of what I choose four years from now. Yeah, I think I think I didn't really put too much thought into my major. And I actually came into Chapman with a trying to uh, have a major in photography. But there was a bunch of other things, uh, ironically, that did not interest me that was like ceramics and drawing and painting. And those are very different from psychology or from photography. Uh, and so, you know, I guess it depends on like what realm I was interested in being uh, integrative versus not, right? Like, I guess from the photography realm, I wasn't really into integrating ceramics or drawing and painting. But I think when we take it to like the academic, all of a sudden I was more interested in integrating things. And so it was really just about taking classes that interested me. And I think if you looked at my grades, all of my good grades, all the A's I got were in classes that were interesting. Uh, and all the the C's that I got were in classes that I didn't care about. And so like that, that to me, I thought, and so maybe like, 
maybe I was behind the curve sophomore year, junior year about like trying to figure out what I was really going to do. And I was really just putting one step forward in front of the other. And that step I was always taking was something that interested me. Right. Mm -hmm. And that actually turned out to be the right path. Right. I didn't know where the path was going, but everything that I integrated into sort of my understanding of what I can do in this world, I kept within what was interesting to me. Uh, and that kind of, and you know, after I kept on putting one step in front of another, I, I find to be where I am today, which is in a industry that really maximizes uh, integrating knowledge from so many different realms. Right. And I think, you know, not only your industry, but the way knowledge work or knowledge workers operate today are, you know, they really benefit the Renaissance man, the guy or the gal that go in there with all of, all of these different uh, advantages from all these different realms, all fusing together, creating a certain brand or knowledge set that you can kind of, uh, I don't want to say sell, but you can kind of promote and, and that brings people together. Um, so, so you got into college, you took the psychology degree, um, you felt like it was a great foundation and then graduations coming up. You have people that are joining, you know, accounting firms, you have people getting into consulting, you have people getting into, uh, you know, traditional finance, uh, you know, investment banking and what have you. Um, where was your head at? Was finance something that was even like barely ringing? Where did you care what the stock exchange was doing? Did you care about any of that? Not at all. Not at all. My first job out of college was working for a mental health agency uh, with kids that had been deemed by the state to be uh, needing to be under the custody of um, the state, basically, um, either because the kids themselves were not um, fit to take care of themselves or they were going to harm themselves or harm others. It was, it was uh, you would call it a mental institution. Uh, I, I wouldn't call if I was uh, working with somebody in the field, I would call it somebody differently. But for the sake of the podcast, it was a mental institution for people yeah. under the age of 18. Um, but what really started to get me interested in finance was just having disposable income, like graduating and getting my first um, paycheck meant was my first like like amount of income that was meaningful to me and and at some point that savings turned into something that I had to apply and so I started um, asking my current roommate about the markets who did who did major in finance and did it major in economics and so that's kind of where it got got started there um, but I had still had no idea that uh, like overall finance and and uh, economics would be something that I would find myself into as a career I was still very much focused in on um, just uh, mental health, you know, um, personal health, um, uh, nutrition and, and, and whatnot. And so it was really, it was really only until like, I actually decided to take charge of my personal finances and actually started to, you know, play the stock market was when I actually started to learn some of the things that people were learning when they were taking their business one-on-one classes or finance one-on-one classes. Um, and right. so it was very, it was very much a side hustle. Like I had my main career path, but then I had my side hobbies and it just so happened that the side hobby actually was the ultimate path that I ended up following. And you got straight into uh, alternative assets, cryptocurrencies, mm -hmm. and things like that when you entered this this new you know hobby that you had. Did that come right off the bat, or did you get into ETFs and CDs and you know all the more you know traditional quote unquote mm -hmm. safer bets? Yeah, the safer bets never really landed with me because like people would say like you would get your 7%, you know, on your on the S&P year over year and I would just do the calculations where I would be like, all right, $100 will get me $107 by the end of the year. At the end of the day, like for a, a young millennial, like that extra $7 on your $100 deposit at the end of the year, like it only really stacks up if you have like the 30, 40, 50 year time horizons and like millennials don't have that. Like mm -hmm. we don't trust that the future that we or the the world that we currently know is going to be the future that we know. And so I got into the the stock market and like, you know, very naively just started putting in money, which like at some point is it's not naive to put money into the stock market. But I didn't really like you know make big calculations as to where where it would go. I'd be like, yeah, Apple sounds good. I enjoyed picking my own mm -hmm. stocks, but like ultimately I kind of just went went to the status quo. But I didn't last long in the stock market before I got pulled in into crypto. I was there, I was playing in the stock market for like a year, just kind of get, again, getting my bearings. And you were buying um, blue chips. You were, you know, getting into value investing, Warren yeah. Buffett type of buys and things like that. Okay. Yeah. Um, also, can I, we, I go, can we go just ahead. real quick question? Um, can you give a little quick summary of what cryptocurrency is 
Yeah, we, we should ready? probably take are a step ready? back. Are we ready to do that? Because that that is not a quick question. <laughs> <laughs> so, uh, you know, we might as well. We might as well. Um, to, to, well, finish the last thought, David, and then let's mm-hmm. ju- jump into that. Yeah, I, I think I, I stepped away from just the ETFs value investing and I started getting into um, what I would now call something closer to YOLO plays, where okay. uh, I, I became fascinated by AMD, uh, and which was known as a millennial stock. It, it was something that uh, the market that that people in the a subreddit really rallied behind. There was a community behind this trade, the AMD trade. Like it was, the, and, and this was in two 2000- thousand you know, 16, 16. 16. So, yeah, so, so five years from GameStop, five years yeah. from AMC. Okay. Right. Yes, exactly. Yeah. 2016, where it was like the D- David versus Goliath story of AMD versus Intel. It was this like, you know, young upstart kind of like brand that can had kind of been forgotten, but was really beloved by the community. And then there was this opportunity, this trade behind it, AMD, like this, if they can get 1% of Intel market share, it would have been great. That's what really fascinated me. But what was the also really fascinated me was the community behind the trade. The fact that there was like a bunch of people where I couldn't find like a community of people behind like Apple equity shareholders. There wasn't the community that was really behind that sort of asset. So that's what really interested me. And then the 2017 mania came in, in the crypto world. Um, and that kind of just blew the doors open to like, what the hell is crypto? Right. Is that Which what we want Which is an awesome segue. Boom. Uh-huh. There you go. What the hell is crypto, David? Okay. So crypto is many, many things. Um, it, and I, I feel could... I, maybe I should, I shouldn't even have to say this, but like we're fifth graders, you know what? Yeah. Right. Like, <laughs> like we're fourth graders. Let's just, you know, one more step down. Go ahead. Okay. So crypto is known as cryptocurrency and most people's brains will go to Bitcoin. And then there's many other things uh, like Ethereum. And then we can go even down the longer tail of what this whole thing is. But let's start with the word cryptocurrency, right? Crypto stands for cri- cryptography and currency stands for currency, right? So it's one part money and one part technology. So when we talk about the world of cryptocurrency, it's a revolution. It's a technological innovation in both technology and money. And if we want to talk about money, money is always intrinsically one part technology. And, and people, don't, people don't really think about that, but it's totally true. The, the technology side of money is the substrate side of money, right? It's the, what is the holder of the value? Because when I give you a dollar, it's worth one dollar but it's really just paper and, and ink, right? And so there's the, there's the physical thing that holds the value in people's brains, the $1 bill, and then there's the actual money, which is the actual fact that you can pay taxes with your $1 bill or people can redeem value for your $1 bill. Money always has two things, right? There's the substrate, gold is, or coins or a check. That's the substrate that money lives inside of, but it's the human narrative perceived value of what is valuable that is the money side, right? And so, you know, we got we got the lump of, of gold, shiny rock, that is the substrate, it's the physical matter, it's the atoms. Um, but then there's the fact that I can give you this gold, shiny rock, and you can give me back a car or a house. That's the money layer. And so all money is one part, or, or all, yeah, all money is one part value and one part technology. Cryptocurrency is a new revolution on what this money can be communicated by, right? And so Bitcoins, it's a one part unit of account, it's one part Bitcoins. And then there's also a payment layers on top of it as well with the the Bitcoin network. Uh, And so really the conversation kind of spirals into so many different directions after that. But it's really just a fundamental uh, different, different way to transfer value between people. And the unique thing about it is that it's internet native, where it doesn't have any dependency outside of the internet itself. Whereas like the dollar or gold, you know, the gold exists in the real world. So the only way that you and I can trade gold is through some sort of like uh, communication system on the internet, we would you, ultimately this would come into something like the stock market. Like that's how we want to trade gold. But uh, with cryptocurrency, it's internet native, as in there's no external dependency outside of the internet. Like all of crypto can exist without bank accounts, you know, without governments, without institutions promising anything. It just lives on the internet. So the United States nation, you know, Europe, Britain, all of these things can come and go, yet cryptocurrencies can stay. And the dollar can come and go, but Bitcoin can stay, regardless of external dependencies. So it's a, it's a new way to communicate value between people that doesn't require any of these old technologies. 
And so that's right. how I would kind of uh, um, describe crypto in, in, a, in a short, short <laughs> description. No, I think that that, I mean, I'm not one to say that you did that right or you did that wrong, but I can tell you that it was very easy to understand and it makes absolute sense to me. I think where we are or what it seems like in crypto where we are now is we're not using it so much as a currency as we would an asset or security in which we can park our money and watch it go up and, and sell it or hold on to it. And I know that currency for the most part, like for the dollar, yes, the dollar has value. It goes up, it goes down, and you can park your wealth in that currency. But that's typically not what we use it for. We use it for transactions, right? Um, and and how we uh, you know communicate value to one another. So going from where we are in crypto now, where it's an asset that you park your money and it can inflate and you sell and you make money that way. Um, where, when are we going to get to the transactional part of currency with crypto? Do you think that's going to happen in our lifetime? Yeah. So this is where the conversation kind of turns to Ethereum, where you know people kind of know Bitcoin as the canonical thing that is crypto. And Bitcoin does one thing really, really well, which is transfer around Bitcoin, right? Bitcoin is for Bitcoin. Ethereum is for almost anything else, right? And so on Ethereum, you can issue it's your own native asset, right? Your own tokens. We call these tokens on Ethereum. And some of these tokens are, are ascribed to do different things. There's a token on Ethereum called USDC, which is redeemable for $1 from the Circle Bank. Uh, and so we call this a stable coin. It's worth a dollar. And you can transfer these things just like cash. And if you really wanted to, you could layer on an application on top of this, which there are, there are many of them, where you, where you and I can transfer USDC tokens to and from each other. And it's just like Venmo. And really, if you think about your Wells Fargo app or PayPal, you say like, oh, I have, you know, dollars in Wells Fargo. It's actually not true. You have a claim on dollars from Wells Fargo. And that's the same thing with PayPal. PayPal gives you a claim on dollars. So really you have PayPal dollars or Wells Fargo dollars. It's not actual dollars. And so with this USDC token, it's the same thing. It's a token that's redeemable for a dollar according to the bank account that holds the dollars. Now, the only thing that's different is that there's a new substrate for communicating these tokens. So if you ask if we are already at the exchange part of cryptocurrency, I would say, well, that depends on if you consider USDC transfers as cryptocurrency, because it's kind of not really what is truly crypto, right? It's not Bitcoin, right? There with USDC, there is a bank account in the real world that has real world dependencies, whereas something like Bitcoin or Ether, the native asset of Ethereum, does not have external dependencies. And I don't think in our lifetimes, or maybe at the very end of our lifetimes, we will see this but not for a very long time will we see you know, coffee payments or grocery payments happened, happening in Bitcoin and Ether because they're meant to be held. Whereas fiat currencies, paper currencies, the dollar, the pound, the yuan, these are meant to be spent. And the reason why they are meant to be spent is because each central bank keeps on printing more of them. We call this inflation. Uh, and um, there's depending on who you ask, if you ask like a conspiracy theorist, a Bitcoin conspiracy theorist, we call them Bitcoin maximalists. Or if you ask somebody more pragmatic, you have different takes on money printing or inflation. But I think there are very strong arguments for why money printing, uh, which there is a money printer at the Federal Reserve that prints money, is a bad thing to do because it uh, dilutes people's time and energy, right? And so, you know, the the when in COVID, uh, the Federal Reserve printed 26% of the total outstanding supply of dollars. And we printed, it was roughly like one year's worth of American GDP. So what, what just happened was that the Federal Reserve pressed command P and copied the uh, sweat and toil and labor of everyone in America. And they did it for free and they duplicated it. And then they spent it as they saw fit. Right. And a lot of that ended up in the stock market, in asset prices. We call this in the in the crypto world, we call this uh, the Cantillon effect, where as the money printer prints, the the reflection of that value ends up in the stock market. And this is something that quote unquote Bitcoin is supposed to fix because it doesn't have a money printer. It's finite. And that's why people like Bitcoin. I thought you guys in the cryptocurrency called it money printer go burr. 
Yeah, money printer goper. <laughs> That's our meme. Mm-hmm. There you mm-hmm. go. Well, I, I I think that there is room for a conversation where we dive even deeper into cryptocurrency, where it's headed, because mm-hmm. I'm just endlessly fascinated by it. And there's, I mean, there's an endless well, right, to dig from. Um, and you yourself are constantly, you know, bringing people to your well and showing them uh, around, so to speak. But what I what I really want to focus on is, you know, who you are and how you got to where you're at. Um, Mm -hmm. because, you know, obviously you can tell when you speak that you're a very educated person on the topic, a leader that people can come to learn more and, and decide how to navigate these very, very new waters. But the thing that is not conventional is your background, uh, to this leadership position. It wasn't so long ago where if you wanted to be considered an expert, you needed to go to an institution preferably a reputable institution that had a big brand. That was very important that the institution had a big brand. They give you a piece of paper and then that gave you the ability to go around and say, I'm now allowed to speak. I'm now allowed to speak on the topic that's printed here on this piece of paper. And you are living proof that that is a dying way of becoming an expert. So can you speak to that new process? Because I don't think our parents grew up in a world where a David Hoffman really could exist. Can you speak to that? Yeah, this is a really, really frequent subject in the the crypto world, actually. And, you know, I'm going to be able to take anything you say and probably relay it to a conversation that's going on in the crypto world, because I I think the crypto industry is one of the great, like, vantage points to view the rest of the world from. The crypto world is extremely skeptical on institutionalized education and credentialing, where, you know, you go and you put in your labor and then you you pay the bill and then you get a diploma and then you get to say like, well, I'm credentialed now. So like we have that system. That's the system we currently have. And say, say we take that system, the credentialing system, and under the natural market forces of capitalism and the collection of um, one, one of the biggest phenomenons going on during COVID is that there are universities buying out other universities, like university integrations is crazy. And what happens at the end of the day is the power and authority to issue credentials uh, centralizes, it converges, and is converging onto fewer and fewer institutions. And so owning and being able to receive the upside of that power to credentialize someone is extremely lucrative. And it autom- and, and it, over time, it goes, we go from small, like, you know, small private schools of like a couple thousand kids, and then we it grows and grows and grows into massive, massive institutions of learning, where the value of being able to provide the credentials is so immensely valuable that you can charge an arm and a leg for entrance into your educational system not because of the value that you provide to your students, but rather the value that your students must get out of that credentialing so they can get a job. I think that this system is absolutely senile. And one of the, my, one of the most favorite things about the crypto industry is that there is no education pathway. The only way that you actually, quote unquote, get educated about crypto is that you did it yourself. And uh, crypto on Twitter is very, very vibrant. And there's this unspoken, like, rule about people that are partake in crypto Twitter or crypto conversation at large is that we all know that if I can have a conversation with you about crypto, I know that you didn't go to school for it because there is no school for it. The only way that you come to know what uh, know what you know is that you learned it yourself. Um, we call in, in the crypto world, we call this the dark forest. There, there's a, a book called the, the dark forest trilogy when uh, the dark forest is this metaphor for this forest that there are plenty of monsters in. And if you reveal yourself, Uh, you get eaten, right? So it's a game theoretic uh, uh, scenario where you have to navigate, you have to learn how to navigate the dark forest and you have to learn how to do it yourself. And it's just a matter of just trial and error. It's fundamental learning, just like everything else. But with this way, there's no like guardrails. There's no, you know, pay $50,000 a year for the fast track. You know, there's no privilege. Like there's only work and toil. Um, and that's actually, interestingly, something I really uh, find also true in the world of nutrition. The world of nutrition is people think that humans know about nutrition and humans do not know about nutrition. Like it's one of the most misunderstood industries that it is abound. And I think there's the too many for, interests. There's too many special interests, too, too many interests. Yeah. And every single, like, you know, you, you eat coffee and then you coffee cures cancer, like all those claims like that. There's so <laughs> many confounding variables that 
no one person can be an expert in it. And so it's the, the and so when I pay attention to nutrition, I don't pay attention to textbooks. I take, I pay attention to practitioners, people that, that actually have their fingers in the dirt that are actually finding real world experiences and then are learning things for themselves. And mm-hmm. I, I'm finding this being more and more true in a bunch of up and coming industries that we find really, that we find a lot of younger folk tapping into is industries that we thought that, you know, the, we thought the boomers figured out and they put it in the textbooks, but it turns out what they put in the textbooks are wrong. And the people that are figuring out that they're wrong are the practitioners that are trying out things in real life. And well, I and I think that that's an allegory. Crypto. Yeah, that's an allegory for for everything that we're seeing, you know, just in general, right? So, mm-hmm. um, for example, Grips Coffee, the the company that I founded, it, it, we're trying to encourage people um, that this life is this dark forest that there is no particular way of doing things that's the quote-unquote right way or wrong way. You need to get into the forest. You need to participate, right? It's about embracing you know, a, a path that you want to be a part of and then getting engaged in that world. It's not about going to the institution. It's not about working for the brand or the, the person that has the brand, whatever it is. It's about engaging. In, in other words, it's about getting skin in the game. You can't be a crypto expert and not have some of your wealth in crypto. You have to be That's playing exactly the right. game. Uh, this is this is a full contact. Life is a full contact sport, and you cannot live it on the sidelines. Um, mm-hmm. And I, I completely agree. Crypto is very much a good example of that. So, I, I, one thing I want to ask you too, David, and, and so if we can circle back here a little bit, um, you were at one point a student. Right. And then you went into the real world and you got a job and somebody said, I'm going to pay you for your time if you do the things that I asked you to do. And then they started paying you at some point in your life. You had to tell yourself or you had to ask yourself, do I want to say no to this paycheck and go off into my own uh, venture or my own adventure and bet on myself and start doing the things that I want to do? But if I choose that path, this constant flow of income is going to go away. Can you tell us a little bit about that process and that conversation you had with yourself? Do you do you remember that? Is 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 it a salient point in your life? Yeah, there it wasn't one was it wasn't one event. It was perhaps two or three. Um, but the fir- the first one was um, I'll start at the very beginning. Uh, working working as a physical therapy aide, trying to get into grad school, and but I'm also going down the crypto rabbit hole. So I start my first crypto podcast with my host, uh, co-host uh, Christian Carolas, also from Chapman, Chapman Kid, um, and we started that podcast, and and we just started to have conversations as we are right now, and we started just putting in the work, and around our tenth, fifteenth, twentieth episode, we kind of started to realize that we had something here. We had, our, we had, we had, you know, listeners that would tune in and people that said that they liked our stuff. So we just kept on going. Um, then I got a job in crypto, which was fantastic. So formally bailed out of health sciences, going into crypto as like a community manager, blog writer. But this was in the peak mania of 2017, where things were unsustainable, right? The, the just asset prices went too high, too fast. They crashed. People built this businesses that were these businesses that were supposed to last 10 years into the future, but they only had funding for six months. And so I got fired, got fired from the job, got laid off. And at that, that was at that point in time where I was, I had done enough episodes at POV crypto where I realized that I actually had something that I could stand on yet. It wasn't ready yet. And I had just gotten laid off from my job. Uh, and so I, when I gotten laid off from my job, it was like, it was inside of an industry that I knew it was already too late. I was already like in the industry. There was no way I was going back out of crypto, but I didn't have a job and I needed a job. And so I said to myself, you know, I just got laid off from, I, I no longer have my income and my income was dependent on somebody else. And I, and I got that rug pulled from me. I never want to have that happen again, especially when I had that taste of uh, success at POV crypto, my first podcast where, you know, I, I already had some sort of semblance of a platform. It just wasn't ready yet. Um, and so I, I spent like four or five weeks, got, managed to scramble to find another job, again, in a brutal bear market during crypto. Uh, and I worked on that job, but I spent a lot more time on my side hustle on the POV crypto because that was really the insurance where like it doesn't, I want it to be true where it doesn't matter what my job, what happens to my job, because if my job explodes, I will always have like, you know, sponsors for the podcast that will be able to, to keep me afloat. Um, and that was my mentality going into it. And uh, I didn't really need 
to fall back on on POV crypto for another year or so. I um, just kind of worked at worked as, at the job. It was something I enjoyed, so I didn't hate it. You know, I didn't hate wait uh, working for that paycheck. But at some point in time, it just became silly that I was working on this job when I could have been working at POV crypto. And so at some point I voluntarily quit my job and then went into actually not POV crypto, but my current company Bankless that I uh, co-founded with my, with my partner, because I knew that I had the skills because I had developing, I'd been developing the skills for the past two years as a podcaster, as a blog writer, an article writer, and a kind of a, a community leader and brand person. I, I knew I had those skills to, uh, give myself my own landing. And it was because I had been working on this side hustle for a year and a half that uh, I was kind of prepping for me to, to, it was like me building the ship on, you know, on my off time, you know, I would come home from work and then I would put a couple hours into this arc that I would build for myself. And as soon as that thing was ready, I like hopped on board and sailed off. And that's where I've been ever since. So you built Bankless while you were at POV Crypto? Okay, so so POV Crypto first podcast, uh, me and my co-host Christian, um, and then Bank. That was actually, your owned podcast. That was not yeah. associated with any media company. Okay. Yeah, it was his own podcast, and then um, the, the and that was between me and, and me and my co-host Christian. And Christian is a Bitcoiner, and I'm an Ethereum. We have in crypto world, we are very tribal, so we debate, and that was kind of the the angle of POV Crypto is a debate focused podcast. Um, but Bankless with me and my co-host Ryan is all much more Ethereum based, uh, which I think uh, Ethereum as a protocol deserves much more attention. So we created Bankless. Um, and so uh, similar skill sets, one kind of just bled into another. Uh, so I didn't, I didn't move the, the POV crypto wasn't necessarily my arc. It was Bankless, but it was still the same skill set. I see. And so you built Bankless after POV crypto and you were building mm-hmm. POV crypto while you were at this other company. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Okay. So you were building things as you were going, but eventually when you got laid off, you said, there's no way I'm going to go back to a a boss. There's no way I'm going to go back to a paycheck given to me every week or, you Mm -hmm. know, bi-monthly or whatever it is. And you said, I'm just going to venture off and you're on my own. Mm -hmm. What did that, what was that process? Was it like, what was going on in your head? Was it scary? Was it, were you thinking about healthcare? Were you thinking about you know, what about grad school? I can come back to this. You know, what mm-hmm. were those emotions that were kind of going through you at the time? I was pretty fortunate in the timing that it happened where um, I, I hopped onto the bank list full time in a moment where crypto was kind of coming into its moment as well. And so I kind of got pretty lucky with like not having to stress out too much about that while, while at the very beginning, the company Bankless wasn't making very much money. Like it wasn't, you know, set in stone. There was still like optimism, right? Like there was still like, well, my industry is growing. And so at least all I have to do is stay the same and I can ride that up. Um, and so I, I was kind of blessed with being able to step on to something that was, you know, uh, into a tie that was raising all ships. Right. Um, and, but th- I think the reason why I, I never gave a second thought about it was kind of the same reason why, I never really, when I said earlier in this podcast, like sometime in uh, sophomore or junior year, I never really considered my long-term trajectory. I now also never considered my long-term trajectory with Bankless, but I knew it was what I wanted to do. And so it was COVID when I did this, it was, I was working from home. I was getting up and sitting down in front of my computer anyways. And all of a sudden, like I had the opportunity where like I can do this, you know, nine to five, or I could do the same thing that I'm doing but all of a sudden it's for myself. And uh, the company that I had worked for previously offered me what I considered a pretty unfair, rotten deal. They, they offered me 3% when, of, of the company when I felt like I deserved more. And so instead of arguing with them, I just left. And later I created Bankless where I'm the co-owner of, which all of a sudden like every single hour that I pour into this thing is my hour, not somebody else's hour. That right. I, re- I reap all the benefits of the hours that, that I put. And it was something, and, and every single day I was self-directed, right? And so I could do whatever I want. And so the calculus for making this decision, I didn't really have to think twice about because I was able to scrape by at the very beginning on an income, but it was something doing something I enjoyed. And there's no better like way to generate an income than doing something that you enjoy because you'll you're at the end of the at the end of the day a 16 hour day doesn't feel like a 16 hour day it feels like an 8 hour day and like 
sure you labored for 16 hours, but if it only felt like eight or less, like that's, that's how you build something. And that's how you kind of like struggle through the beginning growth, growth phases of it. It's because it feels good because it's your hour. It's all your dividends. Right. So you are talking to somebody you know, plenty of people in our audience are trying to build up that courage or trying to understand when's a good time for them to make that leap. What would you say to them as they're, you know, they feel like they're on their last year at this, at this firm with the last year with this employer, they have this idea, they want to take the leap, but you know, ultimately not having an income, uh, you know, maybe they have kids, maybe they have a fiance, whatever it is. Um, what would you tell to them as a piece of advice? Yeah, I think the, the first thing is that you, it's not like a, 100% on 100% off transition. Like you can build out as much of your arc, your, your side hustle, you, and you should build that out as much as possible before you make the leap, right? Like this should not be a leap of faith. You should know what is going to happen next, right? This is not like, a, okay, I'm putting this down and picking this up. You can juggle for a little bit. And honestly, you should be, there should be some overlap. So when you do make this leap of faith into committing some committing something, you should know that you should already have built some sort of net that will be able to catch, capture you somehow when you make this leap, right? Like this is not this is not a faith based exercise. Uh, so there should already be a plan, a plan ahead. Um, that that and, and there's no reason why you can't do both at the same time. You know, um, eight hours. There's some old saying where it's like eight hours rest, eight hours uh, labor, and eight hours recreation. Well, if you if you're young, you know, that eight hours of recreation is kind of a lot. Maybe you should just do four and four, and like keep those four hours working for your building your arc, right? Um, and then and then also, I would definitely say is just get a business partner because doing it alone, yeah. you're going to be lonely. Like and doing it with someone, a two two brains are better than one. But I would also say two brains are two brains together are worth more than two brains separate. So you get mm -hmm. that synergy of being able to rely on someone. And my current business partner, uh, Ryan, he, he's very much like the, this, the straight edge focused organized guy. And I'm kind of the shoot from the hip guy. And that works <laughs> out. Like if we were both shooting from the hip, we would have no one to be organized with. Right. And so doing something with somebody together, a, it's a ton of fun. You get to grow closer with someone, you get to shoot the shit with them, you get to make jokes with them and you, and then you get to make a business with them together and you can divide and conquer. Uh, and so I would definitely say, uh, there's no reason why you should take on this journey alone. You should absolutely bring a friend. Right. Right. No, absolutely. And I think for me, for example, I'm a single uh, solo founder and it is kind of tough, you know, because you have to, you have to get yourself up. You it's, it's, it's by yourself. You have to get things moving by yourself and not having someone to bounce ideas off of can be difficult. You know, I, I'm lucky enough to have some great people on our team. Um, and, and I really rely on them to, uh, kind of keep me straight, but, um, the, you know, like Olivia, for example, uh, but you know, it's, it's tough. It's tough going out there alone. No question. And that accountability thing, I mean, and having that, you know, the gestalt that comes with two minds coming in together. I mean, it really is greater than the sum of its parts. Um, so thank you for saying that. I, I think a lot of people needed to hear that. Um, and as we kind of go forward here, I just had a couple rapid fire questions I wanted to throw at you. Um, mm -hmm. So, you know, shoot from the hip like you do. Okay. Cause I'm <laughs> going to, um, what's something you used to believe to be true, but now know to be false. Something that was, that was at, at you know, the heart of you, that you're now realizing you want to reject this, this belief. Yeah. Am I allowed to say the value of a dollar? Sure. You can say yeah. whatever you want to say. <laughs> yeah. Value of a dollar. Um, yeah. So, you know, people, okay, here, here's a more precise answer. Uh, the consumer price index. I think the consumer price index, which to explain is the price of consumer goods like food and housing that people need to pay to you know keep alive. I think the consumer price index is a, a and I don't 100% believe this, but I'm going to put on my conspiracy theorist cap because I'm good at that um, and <laughs> say that there there is a conspiracy out there that uses the consumer price index to disguise the inflation of a dollar. And so I think if you go- You heard and, it here you, first, everybody. You heard it here first, naturally driven. David Hoffman just called it. 
Yeah. If you look at the S&P over the last 10 years, it's a straight it's a straight line up and to the right and people then that's what people will say when they say, you know, oh, you know, make 7% year after year. That's it's the surest way. What's actually going on is not that the S&P is going up, but that the value of the dollar is going down. That's what's actually true. And the reason is because we have been printing money ever since 2008. Ever since the 08 crisis, we have been in a quantitative easing environment where there are more and more dollars flooding into the market. And so if you are trying to look at how much, am I getting wealthier this year? You actually need to benchmark not on how much dollars you have, but how many shares of the S&P 500 you can buy. So Amazon um, a year ago was worth $1,000, but now it's worth $3,000 a share, right? How many Amazons can you buy? If it's less than what it was three years ago, if you can afford less of a percentage of America than you could three years ago because these asset prices are going up, you are actually getting less wealthy. So it's not, it's not the number of dollars in your bank account. It's assets. How many assets, real world assets are you a, an owner of? And if you are being able to purchase less and less assets year after year, you are being diluted away from inflation. And that also goes back to what we were talking about earlier and how important it is to start things and take ownership of things. Because you know if you're an employee and you're being paid in these dollars that are inherently losing value year after year, uh, as opposed to buying assets that are going to hold their value and, you know, don't get us started in real estate, which is, you know, for the most part, the largest asset delivery vehicle of most Americans, um, you know, you are sitting there with, you know, you, when the, when the tide comes out, you're going to be there sitting where you're going to be there with no pants on there. Th then the tide goes out, you're going to be standing there naked because you don't own anything. And that's something that, you know, they don't teach you in a lot in, in high school or in college that having ownership in something is, is, is bar none, the most important thing to build wealth. I think people are slowly realizing that. And I think when we see these like GameStop situations happening, these AMC situations happening where people are realizing that these other companies either, I mean, that was a short position situation, but these other companies have so much ownership in these companies are realizing how much in America from a economic standpoint, they really matter and, and how big the impact is as individuals that they have. They don't have a very big impact until they all come together. And that's a totally different story that we just all experienced, but um, absolutely. I think absolutely. it's extremely telling that central banks love gold and want as much gold as possible on their balance sheet. And then they print dollars to convince you to pay them for the gold. They just print right. them, right? They trade a real asset for a fake one. Right. Well, and, and I don't think gold, gold year to date is down 2%. I think I read this morning. So that asset itself is not doing very well. It's just a very confusing time. You know, it, the rules don't matter anymore in finance. You print money, the stock market goes up, you know, horrible news comes out of global pandemic, asset prices go up and the party's just not stopping. And like you I, I had no idea that 26% of, uh, you know, floating currency of the USD has been printed in the past year or so, you said, I mean, that's mm -hmm. unbelievable The the numbers just don't add up. So all those right. textbooks that explain to us how it works, they're all wrong now. Yeah. It's a, under, under a, a easy money paradigm. All, all economic thought is different. Right. Absolutely. Well, to go on to the next rapid fire, um, let me ask you this. What's the, and this is going to be great from a crypto guy. What's the worst piece of advice that's constantly being circulated? Ah, yeah. Yeah. So, so people always say, you know, own a diversified portfolio, right? That's how you secure your wealth. Owning a diversified portfolio is how you hold wealth. It's not how you make wealth. It's how you keep your wealth the same, right? A diversified portfolio is saying, I, I want, if, if the wealth of the world changes, I want a piece of all of it. It's for holding your wealth the same. If you want to make wealth, you need to make concentrated bets. Think of all the rich people of the world, Jeff Bezos, you know, Mark Zuckerberg, all those people got wealthy because they owned a ton of equity in their company. They may have, they made one bet. And by the way, it was on themselves, but these people made bets on one specific vehicle of getting wealthy, not a diversified portfolio. Diversified portfolio, if you are a young millennial and you have the rest of your life, a diversified portfolio is not what you want. You might want to make concentrated bets. And then, and then once you make that wealth, then you diversify, but you don't diversify first. That's backwards. If you're, if you're a member of the Rockefeller family, 
diversification is number one, right? Right. At one point, I think John D. Rockefeller owned 2% of the United States GDP. Uh, diversify, man. You did it. Right. Congratulations. Now, now let's hold down and, and, and batten down the hatches. But you're right. If you're a young millennial kind of growing up or a Gen Zer, I mean, mm-hmm. you're you're gonna diversify your your two thousand dollars? Right. What? <laughs> what? You know who figured this out too? Is Wall Street Bets. The Wall Street Bet boys figured this out. You at like on CNBC, they asked about all these like, you know, degenerate trade day traders that went all in on one stock. The reason why they're going all in on one stock is because they figured out that the stock market is a game where number goes up. And so they wanted to make a concentrated bet to get rich. And for a lot of them, it paid off. Right. It was, it was a, it was a social experiment to poke the sleeping giant and the giant woke up. It really, it really affected him. And I, I, it was so fun. I've never seen Twitter in such a like short amount of time, completely change their crosshairs to the same topic for that amount of time. In other words, crazy things happen in the world all the time. You know, uh, the pandemic, uh, Trump stuff, whatever it is, I've never seen such a collection of attention on such a particular pinpoint of a topic than I have on GameStop. And finance is not something that's talked about a lot, generally speaking, at the dinner table, or at least it hasn't. And now it's just absolutely completely taken taken the front stage. David, I have a a random question. Do you think that race plays a factor in cryptocurrency. Could I get you to elaborate? Well, do you think that that there is some element of disparity between white people and other races as it pertains to making money with cryptocurrency? Yeah, I would I would definitely say so. Uh crypto is is an inherently like a white tech bro industry, right? right. Like uh, all the typical like disparities that you see between, you know, men and women and, and races, it's like an order of magnitude worse in the crypto industry. For sure. Yeah, that's so interesting because you see you see people like Elon Musk post about on Twitter, you know, Dogecoin. And if you look at all of the comments, it's just all white men that are mm-hmm. responding. And mm-hmm. I don't know if you know of the the new app Clubhouse, but there are a lot of <laughs> cryptocurrency conversations. Yeah. And actually, while we were talking, I got an alert that there was one. And the whole topic was basically racial disparity in the cryptocurrency industry. Yeah, um, it's pretty bad. Yeah, it does seem to be. I have another question too. Can you explain to our listeners how something like Doge, like what is Dogecoin, <laughs> which everyone's talking about right now? Mm-hmm. Yeah, it, it's very simple. Dogecoin is a fork of Bitcoin. And it's got a few other parameters tweaked, but they're insignificant. The only thing that's different about Dogecoin versus Bitcoin is the name. It's a branding <laughs> thing. That's the only thing. So what is, when Elon Musk does something where he tweets mm-hmm. about everyone should get dogecoin mm-hmm. what is his why is his he doing deal? that yeah yeah well it's it's a meme and i think the reason why people are paying extra close attention to it is because this particular meme is worth five billion dollars that's that's the market cap of, of dogecoin wow um and so some people just can't explain that and that throws off like all the traditional finance people throws them in a complete loop because they they are trying to like figure out what this whole crypto thing is and then they're doing their research and then they discover this thing called dogecoin that's 5 billion dollars and they can't explain why right and 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 then they say you know and then they blow off the whole entire industry and say and says it's a joke um to me dogecoin is a, is an extension of this kind of uh anti um this counterculture. It's like a new counterculture that is giving the middle finger to your traditional value analysis and saying, you know, your cash flow analysis of this equity, I degaff about that. I'm buying Dogecoin. And it's this, it's this middle finger to the establishment saying like, you know what, we're going to do whatever the the hell we want. And, and it's working because it's $5 billion, right? It's a $5 billion market cap. That's, that's most, that's bigger than most companies on the S&P. Yeah, well, I think right now we live in a time where there are a lot of platforms that are going against the grain in terms of Mm -hmm. when you mentioned like the boomer generation, when you think of Bitcoin with, you know, the dollar, or you think of even Zoom and remote work with Mm -hmm. going into the office or really creative creator culture and influencer culture, kind of as an antithesis to a nine to five job. Um, 
do you what where do you see the future of cryptocurrency going? Uh, yeah, so I, I have a very, very well thought out thesis about this. So there's, okay. this, uh, there's this generational thesis called uh, the fourth turning, the Neil Strauss thesis. And the fourth turning references the fourth back to the first turning of a wheel. Um, and there's this four part cycle. And there's this time period called a, sa a saculum that is one long cycle, right? So inside of one saculum is four turnings. Uh, and a saculum is roughly the the length of time that one long human lifespan would be, so roughly 90 years. Uh, and the thesis is that, and you guys have probably heard the line, um, good times make weak men, which make bad times, which make strong men, which make uh, good times, which make weak men, and then it turns and turns huh. and turns. Yeah, and so the, the generational theory is that, you know, you know the 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 boomers raised the Gen Xers who raised the millennials who raised the the Gen Zs or or there's just this generational repeating cycle uh, and at the end of the fourth turning which according to the thesis is we are currently in the fourth turning at the end of the fourth turning there's a crisis and the last crisis uh, according to the theory was the Great Depression. Uh, and this this crisis, which according to the, the the thesis, the theory is is ahead of us. It's not COVID. People, I don't think it's COVID, but I think there is a coming generational crisis. And basically, what it, net net is at the end of this process is that there is a new batch of institutions that replaces our old institutions. And we we you can't go more than a week without hearing somebody give the line like trust in institutions is gone, right? Like we just totally. had the most ridiculous four-year presidency of all time, regardless <laughs> of what side of the political aisle you're on. It was ridiculous. Like right. that's, we can all agree on that. Mm -hmm. um, and, I'm, and I don't think it's going to get any less ridiculous moving forward, right? And then we, we had the Black Lives Matter protests, like both the left and the right rioted this year. Like it's, mm -hmm. the rioting is a non-political issue. The people rioted this year. And we don't also know why, right? Then we have like these tech stock, Mark Zuckerberg people, Jack Dorsey's that are deplatforming the president of the United States, which is right. also crazy. So many of these institutions are failing us. Mm -hmm. And according to the fourth turning thesis is that when our old institutions are decrepit and senile and decaying, society is looking for new order, looking for new institutions to arise and provide us with that structure that we need to operate as a society. And so we, the, my thesis is that we are in the middle of the dis, trying to discover what these new institutions will be while also trying to abandon our old ones. So what do you think of the idea, David, that, you know, in, in my opinion, it's very natural for a younger generation to uh, rebel against the older generation, right? That happens every single generation, you know, maybe some more than others, mm -hmm. uh, right? So baby boomers really uh, rebelled, um, or you could say the, the generation before that really rebelled against their generation. And, you know, Gen Zers didn't, aren't rebelling as much as millennials did and so on and so forth. But the big difference now is that there are tools in the hands of younger generations now that didn't exist in previous generations where the entire generation can collaborate against the institutions and use these tools that previously they didn't have access to and can not only kind of shake their fist at older generations and play punk rock music and rock out and smoke cigarettes and smoke weed, they can actually affect, mm -hmm. materially affect the existing institutions. And so it's more than a, you know, I'm not going to listen to you. It's a total fuck you. Mm -hmm. Yeah. And you are speaking the crypto you think language, that the, right? That, okay. that is like that. So, like, so you are seeing that happening. Totally. Totally. Yeah. So like people, a lot of Bitcoiners will say like the purchasing of a Bitcoin, it's a political statement. This is a political revolution. Like not, not just it's a revolution in technology or money, but it's a revolution on saying who gets to govern over what. And that's why Bitcoin is so powerful is because the elite, the wealthy elite, the government, like the Federal Reserve, whoever's in power, Putin, whatever, they don't have control over Bitcoin, right? Like it doesn't matter. They, whatever powers that were are different now because Bitcoin exists. And so, you know, while people often uh, give out this line where like Bitcoin is like this political revolution disguised as a get rich, uh, get rich quick scheme. And it totally mm -hmm. is like it's a it's a value revolution. It's an ethical revolution, but it's disguised as this like shady Internet money revolution. And that's kind of going back to what we were talking about with a dark forest, where like the only people that understand this to be a social and political revolution are the people that make 
make it through the dark forest of learning about crypto. And it's kind of like this litmus test. Like, can you make it through the dark forest or are you a boomer, a boomer traditional finance person who, who doesn't get it? Like it's, it's a filter. And how can you blame, you know, the younger generation when wealth inequality is where it's at? If, if the roles were switched, the wealthy would do the same, right? Mm -hmm. I mean, any sane person would see the, the way, the way that the pieces are played across the board and how many assets and how much wealth is being hoarded by a small group of people. It's very large, you know, obviously they're going to react in some way and this is how they're doing it. This is how they're expressing themselves. Yeah, it's the it's the oldest trick in the book for when there's wealth inequality and too much people hold all the assets that the people of the world just turn to choose to value something else differently. So like great, 1% of America holds like 99% of the dollars, but that doesn't matter if the rest of the 99% of people want Bitcoin and don't want dollars anymore. All of a sudden the game has changed. And so the more and more hoarding of capital and money, the more you actually incentivize that defection into some other placeholder of value. Right. Right. So, so a question for you. So obviously Warren Buffett, one of his most famous quotes is never invest in something you don't understand Mm -hmm. to those listening to this podcast that are listening to you. And they're like, I'm intrigued. I'm interested, but whoa, it's way over my head. Mm -hmm. What is step one? Um, I would like I would like to say actually what what Alex said earlier where the, you're actually going to learn much better about this industry and learn much faster about this industry if you put skin in the game. And Bitcoin is one of the safest ways to do that. Like if you don't know anything about the industry then the answer is Bitcoin. Um, and then there's a number of apps you can get that done Coinbase, Gemini, our exchanges where you can go and sign up and and get onboarded into the world of crypto. Um and then after that, there's just so many paths to go down with, with education. Um, there's so many books out there. Uh, I could just list, I could list like 10 of them that are fantastic. I think the Internet of Money books by Andreas Antonopoulos are super easy to put, pick up and put down. They are um, uh, talks, actually. They're talks that are put into book uh, into chapters. And so each chapter is actually only about 10 to 15 minutes. So very easy to pick up and put down. And they really do a good job of communicating the fundamental paradigm shifts that are different about this industry that make it really, really unique. And they're very, very consumable. Awesome. So if we can go back to you, David, real quick. So you guys started Bankless. It's doing mm-hmm. very well. You guys just, you know, had the Winklevoss twins on, excuse me, Winklevi twins on. The Winklevi. Um, you know, the, 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 <laughs> so the, cool. the quote unquote founders of, of the OG Facebook at Harvard. Mm-hmm. Um, you were recently cited in the St. Louis Fed, which is a, what an ode to the self-taught, right? The autodid- uh, autodidact that is going mm-hmm. out and giving themselves their own certificate. And then the oldest and greatest institutions are now citing the people that are going out into this dark forest and educating themselves. I think that's just the, the most hilarious thing that it came completely full circle. Uh, so first of all, congratulations on that. Oh, um, thank you. But now that you've built Bankless, you have this vehicle to uh, this community that you built. You brought all these people together. What are you going to do with it now that everybody's in the room and they're all listening to you? What now? Yeah, I remember when I announced that I was leaving my old job and and going full time onto Bankless, and kind of in that same way, I described Bitcoin as like Bitcoin is like this political revolution disguised as this get rich quick scheme. Well, Bankless is a social political revolution disguised as like this media company, right? And so there there are some fundamental truths that if you are a promoter of the cryptocurrency industry, that you are inherently promoting. Uh, in in baked into the values and ethics inside of crypto is power to the individual. Cryptography inherently gives power to to the user, right? The individual, not the institution, right? And so it's, it's well, uh, I would say the, the cryptocurrency and Bitcoin and bankless revolutions are not left versus right. They are libertarian versus authoritarian. And we do not like authoritarians in the bankless nation. We like individual rights. We like individual power. I never really considered myself a libertarian, but when you put it in terms like this, like I'm absolutely on board. And so there are some things that I think are intrinsically good about this industry that um, I think deserve to be stewarded into reality, right? And so I, once upon a time back in, in middle school, I was very politically motivated, politically ide- uh, ideologically motivated, kind of forgot about that. But then I hopped into the world of crypto, trying to find myself in the world of money and finance, but actually instead finding myself back into the world of politics. Uh, so Bankless is actually a political revolution. 
Uh, and we are trying to get people into elected offices because while at the end of the day, one of the fantastic things about quote unquote going bankless is that you get to live and with all of your money and value in the internet stored in a way that only you can access it. So you can access it from anywhere in the world. But at the end of the day, I live at an address inside of the United States that if they wanted to could put me in jail. Right. And so I am interested in using the community that we've generated in the platform that we've generated at Bankless to make sure that crypto manifests itself in the world in the way that it should be and not uh, and doesn't get stifled by shitty regulation and, you know, boomers who don't get it. Therefore, they ban it or something like that. That is where that is my goal. So it, it, when you say political, you mean it. You want to put members of your community into elected offices because you believe that they understand the spirit of America better than these institutions do. Yes, but that wasn't exactly what I meant by political. Um, I think that when in a Bitcoin and Ethereum driven world, the manifestation of these systems are themselves political, right? So I don't necessarily care for a Bitcoin representative inside of the the office of wherever Congress. Um, the fact that these things exist are political. They are political statements that the people want them, right? They are this independent party of people that believe that Bitcoin is good and the values baked into Bitcoin can be exported. And that is a political movement. And I don't, and, and it's a separate conversation whether those politics infiltrate their way into like American Congress and American democracy. They absolutely will be. But even without that, it is still a political revolution. It is exporting what I see as good values to the world, regardless of whether people voted for it or not. Absolutely. I think Grips Coffee, for example, our brand is very pro-individual, pro-individual expression. And I think that that couples with, you know, Bankless and the Times and what we're seeing people wanting to do to kind of step out of their cubicles and give them give themselves a life that they've designed not that we're handed to them we're plopped on this planet we don't know why we're here why would we let somebody else tell us what we need to do whether that's for our career how we express ourselves express ourselves the art that we create the person that we love why would we go to an institution and be told what needs to happen next when we're seeing these textbooks being completely wrong to begin with mm -hmm. so david my last question for you what drives you? This is the Naturally Driven Podcast. You get up every day, you create Bankless, you started Bankless with your co-founder, and now this community has come together. Um, what drives you to create all of these things, to push the needle, to make it bigger? Yeah, yeah, it's a really good question. I, I, I probably should have thought more about that. Um, <laughs> I think what I'm primarily interested in is is during COVID, during already at a work at home job, I've had to learn how to socialize on the internet, right? That's stuck at home. I already, like, I already work remote. Like my business partner is on the other side of America. So like I see my roommate and my plants and that's about it. Um, <laughs> the culture inside of crypto is really, really vibrant. And the people I've met here, like maybe people think have those like this view of, of crypto people as like these, you know, basement level, like conspiracy theorists where like they're trying to people who they're worried about lizard men. Like, no, I have some of my, I, I'm, I have met one, a, a guy, his, his name's Anthony. I met him one time. Every other time I've ever engaged with him has been online. And I'm going to his wedding as soon as COVID uh, opens up and they're allowing, they're allowed to do that. And he's in Australia and I've only met this individual oh. once yet. I have, um, yet I'm going to his wedding. That's that's kind of where I see the future, where there's going to be a lot more internet friendships and internet culture. And I think that's going to be underpinned by, by crypto, first as, as the financial layer. And I don't expect everyone to become part of crypto culture, but I do think that crypto culture can be exported. And we're already seeing, I would see the Wall Street bets culture in that subreddit. That is a similar manifestation of crypto culture. And like also meme culture, very, very much resonant. Crypto people have figured out how to collaborate and work and like generate squads, uh, like shared identities in chat rooms and shared, shared just zeitgeist amongst a group of people. And crypto's gotten really, really good at this because this is the air and water that we breathe in and 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 drink through, right? And we've we've gotten good at that. And underpinned by this social political revolution, I want to bring the culture that we have figured out how to build in the crypto world to the rest of the world. And I want to also at the same time, enable people to grow finances outside of the traditional realm and also grow social networks outside of the traditional realm.
So it's all about supporting individuals, giving them the tools themselves to navigate the dark forest so that they can all come together because life's just more fun with other people. The whole point of life is culture. So like the more, the more culture that we can all build together is, is that's, I feel, I feel like a noble goal. Absolutely. I couldn't, I could not agree more. Olivia, do you have anything? I feel like I could listen to David talk all day. So interesting. That's good because that's my job. (laughs) (laughs) I love it. Well, David, where can people find you? Uh, what, what projects do you have going on and where people uh, can tune in? Yeah. So if they are into podcasts, which I imagine they would be, they can listen to Bankless Podcast. They can also listen to a debate-focused podcast called POV Crypto. Uh, you can subscribe to the Bankless newsletter at bankless.substack.com and also our YouTube. And that's where you can find my voice and face plastered everywhere. <laughs> Hopefully you really like my voice by now. <laughs> <laughs> well, David, do you have anything else you wanted to add? Um, no, I, thanks for, thanks for being, uh, for bringing me on here and, uh, being, I'm honored to be your first guest. Absolutely, man. We're honored to have you. And this has been a lot of fun. We'll talk soon. Cheers. Thanks. All right. Thank you, David. <laughs>